Isn't that exciting? It's exciting for me because that epitomizes why I wanted us to do this renew and traditions thing so that all generations could discover life in and through Jesus. It's exciting me for me for another way because you realize what's happening there? We've got an 84-year-old woman and this last one, a 93-year-old woman who are doing what some of us should be doing. If a 93-year-old woman has the courage to do that, some of us maybe need to have the courage to declare our love and loyalty to Jesus in a public way like that. Just saying. All right. My mother-in-law, as, uh, as you know, because I've mentioned her a lot recently, she died this January, but uh, she was one of the wiser people I have known. Wise and caring. And, and a woman who carried herself with a lot of dignity, uh, with such a warm dignity that uh, people just seemed to want to talk, want to, talk to her and, uh, and ask her advice. She'd be, she'd be literally, this actually happened. She was standing in the supermarket picking out some vegetables and there was a woman beside her and she just sort of turned and said hi to her and this woman just dumped her whole story on her and, and said, ended up by saying something like, what am I supposed to do? And um, we were visiting them once, and after a, a family dinner, LaDonna's dad and I were left sitting, sitting alone at the table uh, talking, and, and he raised the subject, it wasn't me, he raised the subject about the difficulty, the dilemma of a pastor uh, playing the role of a counselor. Uh, he made the observation that it must, be, it must be more difficult for a pastor to be a counselor than a physician, which is what he was. Because as, as he put it, People came to him expecting him to deliver the unvarnished truth, including the bad news. He was paid to do that. Oh, oh they wanted him to be kind and to be somewhat relational, but they, they expected the full truth. And he said something like this. You know, I can talk in a matter-of-fact way about some of the lifestyle decisions they might want to make so that they could avoid or, or mitigate or even reverse their situation. They may not follow through on it, but, but they took it. And they came back. And then he said to me, if you said those same things, even citing the same evidence, they would call you judgmental. Not helpful. And they'd probably walk away. As I was weighing how to respond to that, I'm not quite sure where he's going, what he expected, uh, my mother-in-law came to my rescue. Well, she weighed in. She'd been listening to this conversation from another room and speaking as a person to who people would come for counsel and who people considered a person of wisdom and said, it, it, she just said to me, well, you should do what I do. And before I could figure out how I was supposed to respond to that, my father-in-law rescued me and he said, so what do you do? And so she shared her counseling model. Well, when someone comes to me and tells me their problem and asks me what am I supposed to do, I tell them. And if they come back, I say, have you tried every day what I told you last time? And if they say no, I say, well, go back and try it every day. And, and dad says to her, hmm, does it work? And she said, well, it must because they don't come back again. <laughs> when was the last time you 
said, what am I supposed to do? Do you really want an answer to that question? By the way, husbands, just so you know, when your wife says that, they don't want an answer. And you're not Jesus. Just saying, I mean, I'm still working on that one. But as I listen to Jesus in our tough talk for today, Mark chapter 10, turn there. Mark chapter 10, download this passage in your Bible because you're going to have to read it and, and uh, it's, it's a lot easier. Or down this, download it on your smartphone if you, if you don't have a Bible. Um, anyway, Jesus answers a what am I supposed to do question. And as Jesus answers this question, I can almost hear my mother-in-law. It's caring, but straight, direct, binary truth. And in response to Jesus' answer, the man never comes back. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus said. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The man comes with the right question, as we'll see, to the right person who gives the right answer, but he makes the wrong choice. He turns his back and walks away, and with loving, grieving sadness, Jesus allows him to walk. Now that's sad. But as Jesus goes on, he makes it scary. He turns this encounter into a tough talk for anyone who wants the answer to that question. What do I need to do to receive the big picture life my heart is looking for? Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is implication for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, so who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. It's a tough talk. It's not what we want Jesus to say. You know, sometimes we read Jesus and, and we try to explain away what he's saying to make it less of a tough talk. 
Today we're going to try and explain what he's saying to make it a talk that is tough, hard-hitting, but absolutely life-giving. In this talk, Jesus does three things. He peels back all of the layers and exposes the core struggle underneath all of our issues. And second, he explains in very binary terms the watershed choice that will help us face the right direction in those struggles. And then he ends it off by telling us why it is that doing that is actually a life-giving thing. So let's look at what Jesus exposes as the core issue behind all of our issues. The core issue that if we address will give us direction in all of our struggles. It's in the dialogue with this man. As Jesus started on his way, a man went up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now if you've been following closely on this journey with Jesus through Mark's gospel, your ears are going to perk up and say, hmm, this is interesting. Here is a man who is a leader. As we read the other gospel accounts, a leader, uh, it, this man is not just called a man, he's called a leader. But here is a leader who is not asking a question to trap or test Jesus. He's coming to Jesus to humbly ask him a question. An honest question. Okay, that's new in the book. A young leader, a wealthy leader, who by what he has achieved and acquired in life should think he has all the answers. He should be heady, self-confident, on top of the world. But, I, I love the way one person puts it. There's something amazing in the picture of a rich, young aristocrat falling at the feet of the penniless prophet of Nazareth. You see, this man has heard enough from Jesus and about Jesus that he has concluded Jesus might have the answer he's looking for, and Jesus treats him as sincere, with compassion. He looked at him and loved him. So let's, let's dissect this question for a bit. There's, there are three key words to understanding this man's real question. Word number one, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What must I do? That's an interesting word. Do you know what that word do means? It means do. <laughs> it's a word that implies that there is something he can initiate and act and do to affect a cause by his action. It's, a, it's, it's do. The reason I'm saying that is because if, if we've been around church for a while and learned to use the right language, do is one of those big red flag words, isn't it? And if we were one of Jesus' disciples, knowing what we do now, standing beside Jesus, we would have smiled to ourselves and said, yes! That's a fastball across the middle of the plate. Let's watch Jesus hit it out of the park. I know the right answer to that question. Say it, Jesus. Young man, there's something you need to realize. The first thing you have to understand is that you don't have to do anything. It's not about doing. It's about being done. Jesus has done it. 
But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't start his answer there, and he doesn't take his answer there. You see, in, in Jesus' mind, this, this is not a faith versus works discussion, and we shouldn't take it there. The second key word raises another and perhaps even bigger red flag. What must I do to inherit? Or another way this word is translated is to acquire eternal life. This word is a money word. It's talking about assets. His question is, how can I use the assets that I have gained to acquire the life I'm looking for? And our response that we want Jesus to say is, you can't. It's not about your money. Money can't buy happiness. But Jesus doesn't take it there. Not initially and not ever. It is about this man's money. And it is about what he can do with his money to get the life he wants. Yes, money can buy happiness. But it's the third word that tells us what it is that is really on his heart and why it is that Jesus is soft-hearted to this man. What is it I can do to inherit, acquire the life that is eternal? Now, if you've been around Ellerslie for a while, you might be asking the question, hmm, what word for life is he using here? And if that's the question you can answer, let it go. That's the right question. You see, in Jesus' day, and this wasn't a, a, a religious paradigm, the Greek philosophers had this perspective on life as well, there were three dimensions to life in their mind. Three words in the New Testament that are translated as life. Each of them, and, and we're generalizing here, it, it, it's, it, there's some overlap, of course, but each of them refer to a different dimension or level of life. The, the first word was bios. Bios. It's not hard to imagine what English word we get from that word. It's biology, right? It, it's, it's referring to physical life. Life that we can... The, the, the question in bios is how much? How much? We can, how much do we weigh? How many heartbeats per minute? What's our blood pressure? But it's not just body, it's about physical, tangible assets like money, house. That's bios level life. Life at the surface, but the surface does not mean just superficial or unimportant. It's necessary. But if it's what we live for, we know there's something more. The second word for life was called suke. And it's not hard to realize what English word we get from that. It's psychology, which, I mean, everybody knows that psychologists are a higher life form than biologists. I mean, right? The question on the suke level of life is not how much, it's how well. How well. We're talking about well-being, quality of life, not just quantity. Inner things like feelings and attitudes and happiness and, on the other side, depression. 
We, we use words like heart and soul, and actually, suke is often translated soul to talk about this kind of life. But there was a third word for life that was used, and that's the word zoe. Life. I, in the Bible, zoe is always referring to a life that is shared with, a life that God shares with us, his life. Life lived with and under God and in God. When, when the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, most of it, when that was translated into Greek, there's the word in Genesis 2 where it said God breathed into man the breath of Zoe, and man became a true living suke. What God gave was a zoe that impacted and, 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 and colored and, and made well the other areas of life. In the, book, in, in the gospel of John, this is the key word in John's gospel, zoe, 35 times in, God's, in John's gospel, beginning with the, with the introduction to the book in John chapter one, verse four, where he says, in him, in Jesus, was zoe, was life, and that life in Jesus became the light of man. John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come, says Jesus, that they might have zoe, life, life to the full. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the zoe. Zoe is, is true life. It goes beyond bios and it goes beyond simply inner well-being. In the Bible, as we said, Zoe is only used of a God kind of life. It is the life of God and the life that God wants to share with us. Whenever the New Testament talks about eternal life, it's always eternal Zoe. It's not just life as quantity or life as quality, but it's, it's life as quintessence the ultimate life. And the reason this Jesus looked at this man and loved him is because here was a man who recognized that nothing he had acquired, nothing he had achieved, no matter what it looked like on the outside, was giving him that quintessence of life that he knew had to be out there. There, there had to be more than bios, his wealth. There had to be something better than even suke, quality experiences and secure feelings. Friends, we need to stop right, right here and, and, and ask ourselves, what kind of life did I even come in here looking for this morning? What did you expect this past week out of life that life didn't deliver on for you? Was it simply bios and suke? If I get the right things and through our things and interactions with people, I feel the right way, peaceful, happy, secure, admired, affirmed, life is good. And what happens is we come to church and we expect to be given life at the suke level. And hopefully there are times when we achieve more of that than we can in any other ways. It's not wrong or bad to want those things and it's not necessarily shallow to feel those things, but we all come to the point of not being able to feel what we want and get what we want even in the best marriage, with the best job, in the best neighborhood, or even in the best church. 
life, zoe life, is more than those things that we think we want or need for happiness. Some of us have come to, to see faith as a formula for getting those things. If we believe the right things about Jesus and about God, if we do the right things, we will somehow live at this zoe level and automatically everything will fall into place at the bios and suke levels, right? And it doesn't always happen. Jesus is clear even later on in this passage because, because he says that even when we get this zoe of level of life, that doesn't mean everything will be honky-dory because he throws in the word and what you will get is persecution. Life won't always be good. Why? Why does Jesus not always answer my prayer? Why does life, my, my marriage, um, my job, my church, why does it not deliver on, on the suke level like I want? Well, it, uh, there's multiple reasons for that. But one reason is that not getting those things help us to see and pursue the true good life that is, that is beyond those levels. Zoe. You know, we, we talk a lot today about learning to identify our feelings and, and, and our emotions. And that's important. And then the next step we say is, is to identify what caused us to feel that way. And, and that's all good. But it's at that point that we have a direction to go. If that's where we stop, or if we go the wrong direction in it, we'll simply end up in a vicious cycle because we have not asked the most important third question. And that is not what caused those feelings, but what are those feelings pointing towards? Why are those feelings driving me so much? And the question is, how might God wa be wanting me to leverage those lack of suke-level feelings and lack of, of bios-level deliverables. How does God want to use that lack to point me to an even higher level solution? Some of us are here this morning, we're saying, yes, that's exactly what motivated me to come. I get this man's question. What do I have to do to acquire zoe, a quality of life that is even more than bios and better than suke it was powerful for me to hear that story this morning of, of Lynn, the 93-year-old woman who realized even at her age that there was something more than, than all of the good things she'd experienced. Powerful. No wonder Jesus loves this man. This man is in touch with his heart's longing and he recognizes that in Jesus he might find someone with the wisdom to help him find it. And, and by, by the way, wisdom is what he's looking for. Wisdom, guidance because he addresses Jesus as, as teacher, which is what prompts Jesus to explore his question just a bit before answering it. You called me good, he said. Why'd you call me good? Do you realize what you were saying when you used that word good? You know, he says, that, that no one is good except God alone. According to what we know from the writings of the day, rabbis did not want to be called good. Oh, they'd love to be considered wise. They would 
value it if people would call them distinguished, most learned. But rabbis did not want to be called good because if they were seen as accepting the label good, someone might accuse them of blasphemy, of thinking they were God. You see, good was not seen as a relative kind of word. Good and goodness was in God and God alone. So when Jesus is asking this man, why do you call me good? What he's probing is, do you really understand what you're saying about me? Is is this a Freudian slip? You seem to be in touch with your true feelings of your heart and, and, and the underlying need those feelings are pointing for. Do you realize who I am and what you're saying? question Jesus asked this man is really the same question he asked the woman who came to him at the well in Samaria when he said, if you knew who it was that he was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living Zoe. She's confused because she doesn't, or not living Zoe, living water uh, 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 later on, sorry. She's confused because Jesus doesn't have any of the resources to give her that bios level water that she is there for and Jesus says the water I will I give you will become in you a spring of water leaving up welling up sorry into eternal zoe in John chapter 17 Jesus in his prayer to God final prayer before he died said this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent 1 John chapter 5, this is the testimony that God gave to us eternal life and this life is in his son, not from his son, in his son. Whoever has the son has life, Zoe. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have this life. So back to the real question Jesus is asking this man. Why do you call me good? Do you realize that you will not get this life from me? You'll only find it in me. I am the life you're looking for. Now, we don't know what or even that this man responded to Jesus' question because Jesus, in in Mark's account, moves on to talk about the, the way that he knows this man has tried to find this Zoe. He quotes from the Ten Commandments, the core laws. You know the commandments, he said. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, don't or honor your father and your mother. And the man says, teacher, I've done all that. I do that all the time. All of it. Jesus doesn't disagree with him. This guy's doing everything right. You've got to realize that Jesus, that Jesus is not just answering this man. This man's dialogue, as we learn as the passage goes on, This man's dialogue with Jesus is supposed to be a lesson for the rest of the audience, for me and you. You guys think that if you do everything right, you'll feel like you have it all together? Not going to happen. So, now comes this man's question. He doesn't say it, but it's on his mind, I think. Are you saying there's nothing I can do? No, that's not what I'm saying. You see, Jesus is answering the person who says, you know, I tried coming to church and it didn't work. 
Oh, there is something you can do, but it's not the kind of do you're thinking about. So, that's the issue. There's a, there's a Zoe kind of life that transcends physical life, even feelings, even, even inner life as we most often think about it. And our problem is that when we expect to know that life apart from the one who is good, who is God alone, we put way too much pressure on ourselves, on our environments, and it just compounds the problem. And now we come, to, so this isn't the tough talk yet. <laughs> now we come to the tough talk. The one-step solution to our struggle, the only do that counts, the, that gets me into this third level of life. Jesus looked at him with a heart of love, and he said, one thing you lack, one thing. I can imagine a little dramatic pause here as Jesus lets this man process this statement. One thing? It's like, really? Could it be that straightforward? Could it, be, could it all be stripped down to one thing? Okay, one thing I can probably do. Hit me. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Only one thing, and that's take everything. <laughs> Offload it and come, follow me. Can you see how Jesus is very directly answering this man's question in this man's language? What can I do to inherit, acquire the life I want with what I have? Well, since you asked that question, there is something you can do. You can take all those assets, give it away, and then come follow me. Now, let me first say what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that to follow him, you have to take a vow of poverty. Everybody needs to become poor, that it's more spiritual to be poor. Some of those very disciples of Jesus would own houses even after he was gone. There were, there were wealthy people that were behind founding and funding some of the New Testament churches. So, so what is he saying? Well, the key to understanding that is another word that's in this passage, a word that is really big in Mark's gospel. What is the good news that Jesus came to announce? Chapter 1, he came on the scene and he says, the time's come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe it. The kingdom of God. The key issue in Mark is do you see in Jesus the one who comes to give you the kingdom? The key teaching in the core parables in Mark chapter 4, they're parables about how to live as if we're kingdom people. In our chapter, chapter 10, it's Jesus' statement about being like children when he says the kingdom belongs to such as these. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And it's that statement that triggers this man coming to Jesus. When he talks about inheriting and acquiring a life that is eternal, he knows he's talking about the kingdom of God. Verse 23, Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, children, how hard it is for you to enter the kingdom of God. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is clarifying that what this man is asking for when he asks for eternal life is how do I enter the environment where that life is found? So inheriting eternal life, treasure in heaven, verse 21, kingdom of God, verse 23, 24, and 25, and verse 26, saved, is all relating to the same thing. 
By the way, that word saved is an interesting word. Saved from what? Well, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he, God, has rescued us, has saved us from the dominion, the, the authority and rule of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, the one he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what Jesus is exposing in this man that there is in each one of us is a kingdom issue. What is the rubber meets the road factor when it comes to kingdom? Control. You see, the deal in kingdom is that every kingdom has a king, an ultimate authority. And our tendency from the time the first human being said, we know better than God, we want to be like God, is that we want to be the king in our own kingdom. I can still see and hear in my mind my daughter at four years old when I told her, like I did every night, it's time to pack up your things and head toward bed to start the bedtime routine. First time I said it, what did she do? She ignored it, right? <laughs> so I waited, said it again. Second time I said it, what did she do? She bargained. I did everything I could not to make it a battle. And finally, I said it a little more firmly. Honey, time to get up and walk to your bedroom. And after the third time, she stood up, and with her chin out, she said, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I want to be my own boss. In her transparent, childlike way, she admitted the problem, our problem. The kingdom issue is control. And Jesus came to give his life as a, as a ransom, to recapture our hearts and transfer us to his kingdom, to purchase our freedom from the tyranny of self-rule, of self-will, of self-assertion, of self-identity, and to transfer into us into his kingdom of glory, which means he owns all of us. And our job is to live out in daily life every single decision the way we view the decisions we make to live out that kingdom transfer, that control transfer, what Jesus is inviting this man to do is he is asking him, he's answering his question as to how he can use his assets to acquire the level of life he really wanted. And what Jesus was telling him is just make them mine. And I'm telling you, give those all to the poor and you're going to, Put them under my control. By asking him to give everything to the poor, Jesus is not elevating poverty. He's exposing this man's one thing that he could not leave and let go. The one thing over which he could not give up control. 
And Jesus is taking that one driving principle of this whole section of Mark's gospel, which began in chapter 8, as Jesus is going to the cross, beginning to go to the cross, he's the, that, that um, driving principle in chapter 8, which is, if anyone wants to come after me, which is what he invites us mad to do, right? Come follow me. The path to following me is to deny yourself and die to yourself. Jesus is just fleshing that out in, in real life issues, right? Because it's only when we lose self, lose self-rule, self-will, self-determined, self-definition definition, that we find ourselves, that you will gain the life that you said, yes, this is the life I was designed for. He's designed this, identifying the central issue this man has to die to in order to gain the life he wants. Can you see how Jesus is answering his question? You want to do something to use your assets to acquire the eternal quality of life? You can't. Transfer those assets, everything you are, everything you have, to me. He's not calling this man to poverty. He's calling him to be a disciple. To follow him, to transfer himself, everything about himself, to Jesus. In exchange for what? For the life he really, really wants. So I guess that just brings it back to us. What's my control issue? What is it? We all have it. What might happen if you looked at those frustrations, those fears, those anger you have in that life? The one thing you can't let go. The one thing I need to define me. Quite often, it's the thing that makes us angry. You see, anger often surfaces where our self-centered position is being threatened. Our agendas. So, so, so basically, Jesus is saying to us that our control issues are actually our kingdom transfer point. That's what it is. Let's wrap it up with a key question. What is it that makes this doable? This tough, tough thing. What does it make this doable? I'm so glad for the disciples because they're so real. They ask the question we ask. Verse uh, 26. Verse 26 says, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who in the world then can be saved? <laughs> like this is impossible. This is not doable. And Jesus answered that question too. Verse 27. He looked at them and said, look man, this is impossible. Not with God. With God all things are possible. What's he saying? Is that just sort of a glib, a faith-type word? No, because this makes us read through the passage again and say, is there anything more in here that Jesus is saying? This passage answers the how is this doable question in two ways. Number one, think about it. What does Jesus call himself? You see, when, when we think of control and giving up control, what do we think of? We think we are giving up control to our partner. We think we're giving up control to our boss. We think we are giving up control to our neighbor. No, 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 no. What would happen if I took that person out of the picture and said, no, Lord, just between me and you, I'm giving up control of this situation to you. To what kind of you? 
to a good you, to the God who is good. The God who has declared that I am working all things for your good. Can you see in the one who died for you to reclaim you for himself that, that he is trustworthy? He is good. The second thing that makes us doable is found at the very end of our passage. Peter understands what Jesus is, saying, is asking. And he says, we've done that. We've left everything to follow you. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't agree or disagree with him. He just, he doesn't say, you know, I know, Peter, you're my guy, you're, you've done it. Perhaps that's because he knows that Peter has done this in theory, but he hasn't yet hit his one thing. But what's also interesting is that, remember who's the primary source for Mark's gospel? It's Peter. And Peter probably makes sure that Mark gets this in because it's in this, it's what he is saying now that has kept him going and helped him to eventually identify his control issue. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, with man this is impossible, not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal zoe. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What is it that makes this doable? Number one, we are not just giving up to control to people. We are giving up control to a good God. But number two, it's realizing that when I give up control of all I am and all I have, even in my daily little situations of control, when I give it up to him, what I'm really doing is I'm actually investing it for myself in the life that is true life. I'm not really giving up at all. I am actually gaining the life I want. Oh yeah, it feels a lot like dying, because it is dying, but it's dying into the resurrected life of Jesus. Is that doable? With God, it's possible. Because of what God has done in Jesus, all things are possible, even dying to myself in order to live. We're gonna sing a song as we wrap it up. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. The chorus, come on up, worship team. The, the chorus says, your name is victory. It is. But what Jesus is reminding us is that in order for it to be victory for us in the way we want it, his name has to be victory over us in every single life situation. Lord, we confess that we have made control issues about us and other people. We have made demands regarding life at the bios and suke level. And you are inviting us into something much bigger. Father, I pray that we will see in you in reality the one who is good and the one who gave his life for our 
good. Father, we declare our trust in you. And Lord, some of us today, right now, need to make a transfer of some kind. I'm just going to pause for a minute and let you do that with God. name of Jesus, the one who is victory, all of God's people said, amen, amen, let's rise and declare it.